Father, this morning we need your word. We need the power of your gospel to completely overwhelm us, to transform us, God, from the inside out, to put, cause us to hate sin and love righteousness, Lord. And give us grace to know you more, to want more of you, God, more holiness and more righteousness and more of everything you are, God. And Father, if they be those here who don't know you, work in their hearts today, Lord. Work through this glorious passage here and give me grace to make it plain. And may the meditations, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, you might build your church in us and through us. The gates of hell will not overcome it. I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen and soon coming Lord. Amen. Well, in 1 Samuel 16, a lot of you know this story. When King David comes to the, the fore in the Old Testament, God acts, again, in a way that you don't expect, as he does all through the Bible. God tears the kingdom away from Saul because Saul had been wicked. He'd given Saul the kingdom. He was the first king of Israel, and so God tears it away because Saul was not a righteous man, not a righteous king. You understand the Old Testament, the king is called to be righteous, to be holy, to shepherd God's people. And of course, how many kings were righteous in Judah and Israel? Like five <laughs> out of like 50. And the list is very, very short. But the greatest and the, the king par excellence that foreshadows Christ is King David. And God in raising up King David and removing Saul he called Jesse, told Samuel, go find Jesse. We're going to choose one of his boys to be the king. And so seven of his sons, all of them tall, dark, and handsome. And I like this since I'm not tall, dark, and handsome. I like this part of the story. <laughs> they passed before Samuel, and God says, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. You have any other sons? Of course, God knows this, right? God knows he's got another son. I mean, these men look kingly. Again, they're tall and they're dark and no doubt handsome, and yet... No, they're not the king. So well, I got this one. I got this one child, my youngest son. He's kind of a squirt, you know. He's out there in the field with the shepherds. Go get him. And so God, through Samuel, they bring him in and say, "This is him. This is the king. This is the one. This is going to be the great king through whom I do a good work." And He says this. First Samuel sixteen seven. You got to love this. He says, "Do not look." He's telling Samuel this. God says, "Do not look on his." His appearance were on the height of his stature. Now, I like that part of the best. Don't look, don't look at the height of his stature. Those of you who are vertically challenged, you appreciate that, right? I've been vertically challenged for quite a while now. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him, each one of them. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man sees on the outward appearance, but God, the Lord, looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. That is one of the most important passages, probably in the Old Testament, when it comes to understanding our salvation and what the Christian religion is in the first place. God does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. God chose the youngest and least physically impressive son, David, this smallish, diminutive shepherd boy. And he becomes the greatest Old Testament king of Israel. He becomes great because God makes him great. Because God, as, you, as I love to say, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. So he works through the weakness with this king whose lineage, from whose lineage the Messiah would come, the king who prefigured Christ. Because God looks on the heart. What is important in the Christian religion is not external things, but internal things. 
And we see that in the text today, that what Jesus looks at, what God looks at, what is changing about you is not your clothing, right? It's not the way you look. It's the heart. God changes the heart. Regeneration, we're going to get into glorious patches the next, uh, next few weeks in John chapter 3. Many of you know John 3, 16, of course, used to be America's most famous Bible verse. It was on Monday Night Football right there in the end zone, you know, they kicked the extra point and they'd hit John 3, 16. But God does a work. He changes the heart. If you're being transformed, it's from inside out. It's not how you look on the outside. We come to church and we look pretty good, don't we, usually, for a couple hours. Yeah, you saying, yeah, most of us, most of us. But God changes the heart. Now, John 2, the context here, these three verses serve as something as a bridge between the account of Jesus cleansing the temple, temple which Pastor Doug preached on last week, and the story of Nicodemus in chapter 3, which we'll see begin next week, Lord willing. And though it's brief and almost insignificant seeming, it's not, none of the Word of God is, this section has profound, profound implications concerning the nature of saving faith. So if you want to about the nature of saving faith, right here. For something we normally maybe just kind of read through and yawn and go, okay, we're going to get to John 3, get to the good stuff, right? Well, this is the good stuff, but this cuts us to the heart because it's really not good stuff because of what it says about us and our hearts, Right? We read that Jesus was at the Jerusalem at the pass for the Passover feast, which is where the cleansing of the temple took place. Again, you looked at last week. And what we may what we see next may strike us again as odd, just kind of coming out of nowhere. May in our current climate we'd say Jesus is being kind of rude, kind of churlish, right? He knows, or the Bible is, he knows what's in man. And he being kind of judgmental. Oh, well, yeah, it's the Son of God, right? We're told the Lord did not entrust himself to them. You don't give himself to them, to these, these people, these, these alleged disciples, to those who profess to believe in him. They'd seen Jesus work miracles. They'd seen the water turned into wine. They'd seen him do this great thing. And maybe perhaps other miracles, we don't know exactly what else they've seen up to now other than the water turned to wine, the first miracle. And their emotions are excited about Jesus. And maybe this is you. There's a time in your life and you were really excited about Jesus. You went to a revival meeting or something. You went forward to the altar or you, uh, you, uh, you know, were led to Christ or something like that. And you were excited, but that excitement has gone out. It's just gone. And you don't even know where you stand with Jesus. Well, if that's you, this is the sermon for you. This is the sermon for you. If you just say, I don't know where I am, Pastor Jeff. I don't know where I am with God. I have no idea if I'm right with God or not. Good that you're here. Now, I want you to know where you're going. I don't think it's good. That you know. But I'm saying, if that's you, then, then this text is a good text for you, and this sermon's good for you. Because here's, some, here's the truth, and this is kind of the, the summary of the, the, the sermon in a nutshell. It's very sobering. It is possible to be excited about Jesus, to believe in Jesus on some level, but still be far, far from the fold of God. To love Jesus on some level, maybe the miracles, maybe the things he gives you, and yet to still be lost. To leave here and go out there and not know him. That's what this, this text tells us. And that, well, that, that kind of brings it home, doesn't it? It kind of brings it down to the, the brass tacks, doesn't it, for us? I mean, imagine what his disciples must have thought. I mean, it's not hard to conjure an image of the disciples of Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel wondering, why doesn't Jesus receive these followers with open arms? What's he doing? No doubt they seem sincere. And maybe you were sincere at one time in your faith or you've been sincere once. 
Maybe they'd responded again to an altar call. They'd prayed a sinner's prayer. Maybe you've done that. I responded to those about 157 times growing up. You may have too. On the outside, they looked like believers. They, man, they'd come to church and they would talk the talk. They knew the, you know, they knew the Elizabethan English, the these and thous and the thuses, you know. They, had the, they could talk the talk. But look at Jesus' posture, verses 24 and 25 toward, toward them. He says, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, these guys, these people are claiming to be believers, and he says, I'm not giving myself to you. I know what's in you. I know what's in your heart. And i got four points, and that's the first one this morning. The first, uh, that, that we must know about God, about us, and about, G- about ourselves, and about Jesus. And what hangs in the balance this morning, as it does every Sunday, is eternity. That's it. When I stand here and preach God's word every Sunday, that is sobering, isn't it? Heaven and hell hang in the balance every week. When this word is preached. And in every church where it's faithfully preached. Here's my first of four points. Jesus knows you completely. That's one thing it tells us here. Jesus knows you completely. God's knowledge about us is different about our knowledge of each other. And even our knowledge of ourselves. What Jesus knows about us is different than what I know about you. And even what I know about me. I don't really know me like I think I do. And you don't really know you like you think you do. I mean, we may deceive others about our spiritual condition. We may even deceive ourselves about our spiritual condition, thinking we're lost, we're found when we're lost, in fact. But we cannot fool Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. You can't fool Him. You know, you're standing up here in khakis and a blue button down. I'm not going to fool Him this morning if I'm outside of Him. If I'm lost, I won't fool Him. I may fool you. Say, man... He used some big words up there. He's, he's really shucks the corn and say, no, but th- that's not what matters, is it? Has my heart been changed? That's the, that's, the, that's the question. I mean, this should make religious hypocrites tremble. If you're a hypocrite and you know it, you should tremble at hearing this text preached, just read. Because there are people here, and maybe some of you are like the church at Sardis that John writes of in Revelation 3, the same John. He says, I know your works. I know your works. Spirit says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. you got a reputation. People think you're a Christian. You put on a good face. You wear the mask. But I don't know what's behind the mask. Sardis, you're dead. And no doubt, even in a crowd this size, that's some of you. You're just used to going to church. And that doesn't save you. And so I've been baptized. Well, that doesn't save you. That's just an outward sign for an inner reality, right? If, if indeed you are saved... I know your works, John says in Revelation. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Is that you? Is that me? Woe to us. Because God knows everything. Hebrews 4.13. The writer of Hebrews says, No creature is hidden from God's sight. Jesus is God, right? Fully God, fully man. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus knows you. He knows me comprehensively. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows your heart right now. You may not even be listening. You may be saying, I'm going to ignore this, but he knows that too. It's frightening, isn't it? Every word, every deed, every thought, everything comes into our mind. Every heart motive, God knows it. He knows our hearts better than we know ourselves, right? 
And of course, verse 25 here is another proof of the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. He needed no one to bear witness about man because he knew what was in man. I don't know what's in your hearts. You can fool me. And I tell my kids this. Yeah, you can fool me, but you can't fool God. You can do some things and you can hide those things from me and you can't fool God. I'm easily fooled, actually. If you're one of my kids, don't take that to the bank, okay? He's easily fooled, <laughs> so we're going to fool him. <laughs> right on. But you don't fool God, and that's the point. And neither do I, by the way. This, this text applies to me. As we love to say as preachers, the preacher talked that I point one finger at you, but three are pointing, four are pointing back at me, whatever. That's right. God knows the heart. He's, Acts 15 tells us he searches hearts. Romans 8, 27 tells us this is why he's able to tweak the Pharisees so often. They know theology. They believe they are righteous, but he knows the true condition of their hearts. It's, it's done nothing for them. Their theology has done nothing for them. Their righteousness, their so-called righteousness, their external righteousness has done nothing for them. Not anything that matters. It's why in Luke 13, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, Jesus concludes that the tax collector, what? He's the one who went home justified rather than the Pharisee, Right? Because he said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. He knew what was in both their hearts. That's why he tells the, he tells the parable. This one, the one you wouldn't expect, the one who's ugly on the outside, who's, who's filthy seemingly on the outside, he went home justified because he humbled himself before God and repented. The, Phar the Pharisee who said, thank God I'm not like other men. I'm not like you. I'm not like you. I'm not like you. Thank God. And he's aiming at that, the Pharisees, right? That's who you are, Pharisees. You think you're better than other people. You think, you, you think you're more righteous than them. No. You have a self-righteousness, which is only enough to condemn you. That's what he's saying when Jesus gives that. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. One who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm convinced that the Pharisees receive so much ink in the four Gospels because the Pharisees are us. We've met the enemy the famous quote says, and he is us. It's us. We're prone to being deceived. There's no doubt someone here is deceived today. We're prone to it. We're prone to think far more highly of ourselves than we ought, or else Paul wouldn't say, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. And Paul says that like several times, right? But we're prone to think more highly of ourselves. We're prone to exalt our own righteousness, think we're far better than we are before God. We're far too prone to trust our own heart motives while being certain that the motives of others are sinful and wrong, aren't we? We love that. We always know your motives. Man, my motives are pure. You can question my motives all you want to, but I've got good motives, righteous motives, righteous anger. I was angry, but I was righteous in it. Love that one. You, sometimes true, but not usually, is it? We're just real honest about it. Prone to being deceived. Prone to blindness. Matthew 4, 23, this is, what a word picture Jesus uses. What a phenomenal preacher he was. He calls them what? Whitewashed, whitewashed what? Tombs. This is on the outside, you know, you go, uh, I, I love, now this is really weird, I know, I'm a historian, so I love to go and visit graveyards where famous dead people are. And man, there are some spectacular monuments to these people, right? George Washington or Charles Spurgeon or whoever your hero is. And it's beautiful, but what's on the inside? 
dead men's bones. There's nothing alive there, is there? Nothing to see here. Quote the immortal Barney Five, nothing to see here, just dead man's bones. Beauty on the outside, marble, and it's polished, but it's dead on the inside. He says, that's who you are. You may come to church and you look good, and you may have been baptized, you may have done this, but you've never given your, really given your life to Jesus. You're just a whitewashed tomb, Pharisees, and he's talking to us. And he called them this because they were totally deceived about their righteousness and totally deceived about their eternal destiny. Is that you? Point two. So Jesus knows you completely. Jesus also knows you better than you know yourself. You say, come on. Come on. I, I know myself pretty well. No, you don't. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. One of the cliches I've heard most of my life is follow your heart. You know, there's 10,000 80s love songs. Just follow your heart. And that may sound great. That's wonderful. Just follow your heart, man. You just want to cry and hear that. You think, man, it's great. Just follow your heart. That makes a really good love song. But that's terrible theology. In fact, I would tell you right now, don't follow your heart. Don't. Just stop right now. If you're following your heart, uh-uh. Just time out. Don't follow your heart. That's what I like to call Jiminy Cricket theology. You know what Jiminy Cricket said? Jimmy DeCreeus said, let your conscience be your guide. To which I would say, let your conscience be your guide if your conscience is informed by Scripture, the Word of God. And okay, maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, your conscience is tied to your heart so you can't trust it unless your heart is right with Jesus. And your conscience is captive to Scripture. That's the only time you can trust your conscience. The Jimmy DeCreeus theology. When I was a journalist, I heard, I was covering a murder trial one time. And it was clear this man was guilty. And I remember his attorney standing up and saying, you know, he's, I know he's been the accused, you know, the accused has been standing before us for all these days and we've heard about the heinous crime he's committed or alleged to have committed, but he has a good heart. And Jesus said, no. You know, you say, I give you my heart to Jesus. We know what we mean by that, but Jesus doesn't want our hearts, does he? <laughs> no, I mean, he wants to change our hearts. No, he's just a good man. He has a good heart. We read this this morning, what Scripture says about our hearts from Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I didn't say that. The Word of God said that the heart, your innermost being, your affections, all the, the center of your uh, being, that's what heart means. I mean the thing that beats inside you that's keeping you alive. Right now it's putting blood to all parts of your body. But the heart, the see the emotions, the person you really are, the heart is deceitful above all things. You're easily deceived and desperately wicked. Before you came to Christ, if you're outside of Christ, that is who you are according to God's inspired, inerrant word. And so trusting your heart is dangerous because your heart is not a sound moral guide. We're easily fooled. It's hard for us to be, uh, for, not hard for us to be lulled into being at ease in Zion, thinking that we're right with God when in fact we are not. Because we can wear the cloak of religion, can't we? Very easily. This mantle falls on us easily. And we're just nothing more than a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. We have dead hearts, depraved hearts. God looks on the heart, not the outward appearance. The eyes of Christ see what's really inside of us. So you think you know you. Jesus knows you better than you know you. He knows your motives. He knows what's in your heart. He knows if you've been reconciled to him. He knows everything. So we must draw near to Christ after we are in him. After we come to him, then we must draw near to him. James 4 said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jesus is God, right? So we draw near to God. 
We must seek daily transformation, not just at church, not just one day a week, one hour a week, daily transformation. Christ Fellowship Church exists for the transformation of God's people. That's why you're here. You're here to be transformed by the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. And that is a daily pursuit, not just Sunday for two hours, right? Daily transformation. Praying that God will cause you to hate sin and love righteousness. When I prayed this morning, that we will look now, look to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and that will be the priority of our lives. Lord and Savior, not just Savior, not just some fire insurance. So Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Thirdly, Jesus knows our hearts are sinful. What does Jesus see in man? Well, he sees our sinfulness. I'm going to use this term. It ain't pretty. He knows our depravity. That we're totally depraved. You say, man, I'm not totally depraved. What are you talking about? I'm a good person. I pay my taxes and I'm nice to my neighbors and I try not to be mean to people too much, you know, and I don't try not to cuss too awfully much and all these things. I'm a good person. Well, that's not what totally depraved means. Here's what totally depraved means. It means you are comprehensively captive to the, the flesh, to sin and the devil in this world, right? You're, com- you're comprehensively, your emotions are broken and fallen. Your, your will is in bondage to sin. That your, your heart is captive to the devil in this world if you're outside of Christ. He knows our, and Jesus knows this. He knows our hearts. That's why he didn't give himself to these people because he knows what's in their hearts. They're false confessors. He sees mankind has rejected his creator. And in that, we are comprehensively depraved. I mean, look at the culture right now. Is there any doubt? I mean, our country is running in full, all-out rebellion against the living God. What is LGBTQ? It's scandalous, scandalous, wicked transgenderism. It's a rejection and overturning of the created order. Saying, God, you messed up. I'm going to create. How arrogant. I'm going to fix it. God does not need an editor. God is not an amateur. He does not need our help. We are fallen. We are desperately, the heart is desperately wicked. Is there any doubt? I mean, look at the response to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which is come and pray for it. I mean, they're wanting to kill people over this. Bloodthirsty, bloodthirsty sinners in the, against God, right? God in the hand of angry sinners. Let's turn Edward's sermon on its head, right? <laughs> That's what we have here. So we see it. We, we know that. We know, and if, if not for God's grace, that's where we'd be too, right? We know God has worked in us to rescue us. I mean, do people praise God for the good things they enjoy? Are they thankful to the Lord for the many blessings they receive? No. And we're not thankful enough either, are we? I, I'm not. I need to be more thankful. I pray God make my heart thankful. Do they honor God humbly with their lives? No. Most people, I would say, mainly avoid God. God doesn't figure into the equation of their lives. We just ignore and live as if he is not there. They deny his existence. They deny his lordship. That's what evolution is. That's what Darwinian evolution is. It's denying the creator. The most ludicrous lie Satan ever told. It's just ludicrous. And yet, and yet our culture believes it. Swallows it hook, line, and sinker. Right? That nothing plus nothing equals everything. Does that math work out? Love what R.C. Sproul said that out of nothing, all the creation sprang into existence. But how does everything spring out of nothing? It can't. And it doesn't. And it's a lie. 
in the culture of swallowing it. We see, we see that. Oh, we were, our hearts are sinful. Jesus knows this. We, we're in full rebellion against our Creator. We love and, and serve the created order, worship the created order, and serve the creation rather than the Creator. Romans 1, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Paul said. That's human condition. They suppress the truth. They know the truth because they see what God, the created order, and they push it down. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For although they knew God, this is Romans 1, 18 and following. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or, gave thanks to him, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They worshiped the created order. We look at Paul in Romans 3. Let's turn there real quick. Romans 3, 10 to 18. Here's Paul's further diagnosis of the, the human, spiritual diagnosis of human beings. Listen to this. In verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one. No one understands. Don't miss the comprehensiveness of this language. No one understands. No one seeks after God. There's really, strictly speaking, no such thing as a seeker, right? Not really. If you seek God, it's because he first sought you. All have turned aside. All, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he gets worse, doesn't he? He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And he summarizes it this way. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I see that even in the church. There's no fear of God before our eyes. To fear and love and reverence the one who made us. We're living in full rebellion against him, Paul says. None righteous, not even one. Not one, not one. That's the spiritual diagnosis of everyone outside of Christ. That's the world. I mean, summing up right there, the Bible's doctrine of total depravity. Isaiah 6, 1, 6. Isaiah says, from the sole of the feet, even to the head, there is no soundness. From the sole of the feet, the top of the head, no sound. Nothing sound in sinful people. And if you're outside of Christ, that is you, if you've come to Christ, praise God, you've been rescued by his grace. It should humble us. Man's sinfulness it might be the only doctrine of the Christian faith that is empirically provable. We see it, don't we? We see it in our children. It doesn't take long. Not at all. You see it in your precious little babies. I know. We see it. Not my precious little babies. You see it. It's provable. The streets declare the sinfulness of man. Right? We see it. And we see it in ourselves, don't we? The, in this, in the, this fight, this war that goes on inside us after we come to Christ, this war between the flesh and the, the spirit that goes on when we, you know, we wrestle uh, with, with all this sin, this indwelling sin. Paul says in Romans 7, we wrestle with it and we know it's there. And, we, uh, and, and God is asking us to every day pray to put it to death. That the spirit will prevail in our lives. And of course, we know we will eventually, but that will be in, in glory. 
mean, sinful people, as I said, tend to be deceived about themselves and therefore about God and life and judgment and salvation. They mock God. They laugh at him. They say, look at what we're doing. We're doing all these things. And he's not coming back. He's not judging us. Where is God? Well, as one old Southern Baptist preacher put it, there's a payday someday. There's a payday someday. We see this in our own denomination, don't we? There's a payday someday. The only how it's in for a season is today that day. It's today that day. We, can't, we delude ourselves, but we can't delude God. He sees, he knows our hearts, he knows we're depraved. He's sent his son uh, to, to be our savior. He made him a new no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He sent his son to do for us what we could never and would never do for ourselves. We're not fundamentally good people. How do we see ourselves accurately? Well, two ways here. Two ways we see ourselves accurately. One, we study the Bible's teaching about God about the holiness of God. We've lost the holiness of God in our churches. We're all going after all kinds of nonsense. This is where it starts. The holiness of God. I mean, think about the prophet Isaiah. Talk about this last week in my sermon in Virginia. He went into the temple to pray at a time of national crisis, not unlike what we're facing in our country now. Probably worse. And there he saw God high and lifted up, and it changed his life. If you see God, I want you to come to Christ's fellowship and see God, not in me, not in a, a vision, but in his word. You see God, and it changes you. You cannot be the same. If you encounter a holy God, you'll never be the same. Never, ever, ever, ever. Isaiah said this. He, said this. he didn't say, well, hey, man, good to see you. How you doing, homeboy, right? That's my God. No, he doesn't say that. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That's what he says. He sees his own sinfulness and light of the holiness and the glorious of God. He sees the wickedness of his heart. He said, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have you seen God? Have you seen God? Because if you know God, Calvin put it, your knowledge of God and knowledge of self are inextricably tied together. If you know God is holy, you'll know yourself as a sinner. This won't be a problem for you to hear about things like total depravity if you know him. Isaiah certainly had no problem. This is a prophet of God. He was raised up and he said, I, I, my lips are unclean and the people I dwell with are unclean. My eyes have seen you, the Lord of hosts, and that tells me. So we capture the Bible's vision of the holiness of God. That's one way. That's one way to understand or see ourselves accurately. Secondly, we ponder the requirements of God's law, the Ten Commandments, as summarized in the Ten Commandments. We ponder those requirements because John Calvin said God's law is a mirror. We look into it, we see ourselves for who we are. We see ourselves as sinners undone, lost, and without hope, except in Christ. It's a mirror. We look into this perfect mirror and we see ourselves as full of bitterness and anger and resentment and pride and self love and self pity. And, and 10,000 sins beside and lust and arrogance and rudeness and all these things. We see it when you see God's law. And we know we can't live up to it. We know someone must do it for us. It's a mirror. We see how far we've fallen short of the righteousness of God. How fall, far we've fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, the law of God shows us we are in the position of the Pharisee. When the Pharisee and the tax collector were together in that great parable, the Pharisee or the tax collector cried out and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's what, the, what God's law points us to. It says, you're a sinner. You need God's mercy. 
Because there's good news in this. There's good news in the gospel. The Bible's about redemption. There's good news for your heart to be changed. I'm getting ahead of myself. I mean, today people do not seek forgiveness because they don't think they're guilty. In personal evangelism, I see this all the time. I'll say, you know, you're a sinner. Well, I'm not a sinner. Really? Kept the Ten Commandments? Well, no. Well, then you're a sinner. By definition, sin is what? It's missing the mark. It's missing God, not keeping God's law. Well, no, you're a sinner. I sin. I miss God's mark. Even though I'm a Christian, I'm, uh, I'm regenerate. I've been redeemed, and yet I, I miss the mark because I've not been perfected yet, and I won't be till glory. You don't think they're guilty. If we read and reflect on the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, which it unpacks the, the moral law of God, we will gain a much clearer picture of the ugliness of our spiritual condition and our need for a redeemer, our need for a counselor, a, a mediator, a Lord to save us. Our salvation is by grace alone. So the glorious truth is that not only must we not pretend to be good, we need, do not need to be good. You say, well, I heard that preacher preach this morning down there at Christ Fellowship, and he said, you need to be good to come to this church. How many of you think I said that? No, you really need to realize, and I'm trying to convince you, that you're not good. Because when you come to Calvary, you come to the foot of the cross, you lay down not only your sin, but your righteousness as well. Your righteousness is nailed to the cross. Because your righteousness, Isaiah said, is as filthy rags. Right? We have no righteousness. We need an alien righteousness outside of ourselves given to us to be reconciled to God. That's why Jesus came. And we're guilty, 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 guilty. Jesus, not guilty, bearing the guilt of those who are guilty. That's what Calvary, that's the glory of Calvary. God justifies the ungodly, not the sort of godly, not those who are trying to get it together, and trying to be as good as they can be. No, God justifies the ungodly, that is you, that is me. Salvation comes by God's grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. Richard Lovelace, commentator, said, A church with a weak understanding of sin will thus inevitably be a church in which the flesh is alive and spiritual vitality is dampened. So why do you talk about sin so much? Because that's what we need to hear. Oh, we can go to church and be entertained. Neil Postman said we're entertaining ourselves to death, right? And indeed we are, even in the evangelical churches in this country. God forbid, if we entertain you, fire every one of us. Send us home. And say, go do something else. Go back to journalism. You're not talking about sin. You do it. You do it. I know you will. <laughs> say, I love you, but no. Sin is our problem, our greatest need. I mean, this has often been described as seesaw theology. On the opposite sides are our view of man and our view of God. On opposite sides of the seesaw. Think about that. Okay? You like that? When one is up, the other's down. View of God, view of man, sin. The better we think of ourselves, the less we care about God and think about God and His Word and His holiness. The more we exalt God and His holiness and His righteousness and His Word, the lower we are. And that's where we need to be. That's where we need to be, right? We need to know. We need to be humbled and need to be lowly, not just, woe is me, gosh, I'm so depressed. No, I mean, to flee to Christ and find the remedy for our sins. That's why we need the law. That's why we need the holiness of God. When we see the enormity and the heinousness of our sin and then realize that the sinless Son of God laid down His life for us, then worship on Sunday morning will be something that is joyful, is joyful beyond compare. Something we will not miss no matter what. Not because we want the preacher to be happy or Christ's fellowship to be happy, because it is our priority. 
Because we're together to worship the one true living God who's loved us and gave himself up for us. When we see the great rescue he's done, we're going we're to worship, we're going to fall on our faces and worship him. God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows you're totally depraved, you're sinful. And fourthly, God, Jesus does not believe in everyone who believes in him. What? You heard that right. Jesus does not believe in everyone who believes in him. That's what he's saying here, back in John. He needed no one to be, okay, Jesus did, on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They gave themselves to him, he didn't, he didn't give himself to them. Why? Well, because their motives were wrong. They were, they'd seen the miracles and they'd come to him because, wow, he's got miracle power. We want to tap into that. No, they didn't see themselves as sinners, lost their need of a Savior. When they believed in Jesus on some level, but he had no faith in their faith. In other words, there are false confessors, people are deceived. I mean, Jesus turned the water into wine. They'd seen that, the other miracles, but their faith was, it seems like intellectual assent. They said, oh, I believe that. I believe that's to be true. I've heard it all my life, and I think it's true. And they're still lost. James 2.19 says, even the demons have that kind of faith. They believe, they, they know it's true, and they shudder, and yet they're demons. They're demons. These people like the seed that fell on the rocky and the thorny ground, Matthew 13. Those who possess such faith hear the word of God. They initially receive it with joy, but because our hearts are never truly changed, they fall away when adversity or other worldly riches, or worldly riches beckon. They face adversity and they go away or the worldly riches come and they don't need God anymore. They've got their money. They've got their things. They've got their safety. They don't need God. Jesus said he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he, knew, he himself knew what was in man. I mean, Jesus is God and he knows the true state of every single human heart. He did not give himself to them because he knew in the end they would mock him and scorn him and nail him to a tree as soon as he was the kind of savior they didn't want. As soon as he began to call them whitewashed tombs and tell them I came to die for you, they would mock him and they would go away. Every one of them, except the 12 and a few others would go away. He knew it. He knew what was in man. I mean, the difference between saving and faith and spurious false faith, and maybe some of you have that, and that is my fear this morning, but the difference between those determines the eternal destiny of your soul. So I plead with you to, to think about this, to meditate on this, to examine yourselves. I mean, a sinner must repent of his or her sins and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the eternal Son of God, the only way to be made right with the Father. That Jesus cleansed the temple earlier in this chapter shows his absolute hatred for and intolerance of sin. It's not enough to think of Jesus as a good teacher or a prophet or miracle worker or your provider or your safety or your, your ticket out of hell, your fire insurance. It's not enough to think of him that way. You must repent of your sins and trust in him as both Lord and Savior. Savior, yes, and Lord. So what is repentance? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's, that's important. Puritan, the great Puritan preacher Thomas Watson had six marks of repentance. He said, first of all, there's they're seeing sin. We have to understand that it's sin. It's an infinite offense against the Holy God. And then there, 
And then we have genuine sorrow over sin. You see it, you sorrow over it, you sorrow that you're sorry for it, that you've offended a holy God. Confessing that you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then there's shame, the third element. That you've sinned boldly, boldly against your creator. Shame in that, isn't there? And it is shameful that we've done this. Seeking forgiveness for your sin, hating your sin, and seeking by God's grace to turn from sin. That's it. That's genuine repentance. That's what repentance means. It's the new birth. I'm going to just look at that in the, new, the, the chapter 3 next week, beginning next week for uh, several weeks. You must be born again. If you would see the kingdom of God, Jesus said. So how do we know? How do we know? It's important. We've got to know, right? It's important that we know. Well, I think the parable of the sower, and I'm not going to read this, but you can read this this afternoon or some other time this week. Mark 4 also appears in the other Gospels. There's four kinds of hearts. The preaching of the word goes out, and he says, first of all, the preaching falls in the hard heart. Their hearts are hard. It's initially soft, but then it's hard. Maybe they made a profession of faith, but it, 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 Satan came and he stole the word away, and they hardened their hearts. The ground is hard. The seed doesn't take root. It never grows. There's also the shallow heart. It falls into the shallow dirt, the shallow soil, and it grows up, and it looks good, but the sun comes out. The, the issues of life, maybe suffering, you, you thought God was going to give you prosperity, Jesus would make you rich and healthy and all these things, and that's your promise, and when it doesn't happen, then the, soil, the seed that's falling into your shallow heart is, is, is crushed out, it's, all the life is sucked out of it by, by the, the heat in this life. There's a strangled heart, the weeds of riches. You become rich, you don't need God anymore, and it strangles that faith. It strangles that seed. It never grows up into maturity. And then there's the open heart, and that's the only one that bears good fruit. How do we know? Well, which one are you? Which one are you? Is there fruit in your life? Can we see? I don't mean perfection. But are you seeking love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Is that, is that the desire of your heart? Because if it's not, then maybe you aren't in him. Maybe, maybe you know Jesus, but he doesn't know you. Paul says, examine yourselves in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. See if you be in the faith, and that's an ongoing thing. Not a, so that we're you know, paralyzed and things like that. We're just navel-gazing, but no, you examine yourself. Am I really saved? I mean, eternity hangs in the balance this morning, and every time you read the word and the word's preached. And so I plead with you this morning to examine yourselves. If it were illegal to be a Christian in this country, and it may become somebody, I don't know. Would you be arrested and convicted and say, well, there's evidence right there? I don't mean because you have a Bible in your house. I mean because of the way you live your life. Because if you're in Christ and he knows you, you're going to want to be transformed, to be like him, to be like Christ. Examine yourself. Do you love God's word? Do you see it as a daily part of your walk with him? Do you see it as important or just inconsequential? Oh, it's just one book among many. It's like the Vedas. It's like you know, the Quran. This one religious book among many. No. It is the very word of the living God. Do you see it that way? Do you want to know God more? Do you want to hate sin more? I mean, through prayer and meditation or memorization of God's word, are you putting sin to death? Are you killing those things that you wrestle with? You're wrestling less and less and less with them. Are you? Are you resisting temptation? We must zealously resist and fight against sin and resist temptation. 
It's going to come. Satan's going to tempt you. Your flesh, your unmortified flesh is going to tempt you. We all have temptations. I have them. You have them. We all have them. And we ignore the warnings in the Scripture to our own peril. Remember a few years ago, some young boys down in East Tennessee, down where Pastor Doug is from, John David, our old elders from, down there, they, they, built, they, they went into a campsite during the drought part of the year. Big science says no campfires. Well, they built a small campfire. Before long, the winds blew some of the flames out into the woods that set the woods on fire, burned thousands and thousands of acres and burned for like three or four weeks and burned 2,500 businesses and homes down. Just a small little fire started it. And see, that's you if you don't put sin to death. When you see it, you want to kill it. You ask God, put that to death. You flee from it. You resist it. Because that's, it's going to, it will ruin you, it will burn down your life in lust or greed or pride or envy or, or malice or, or gossip or whatever it is. Scripture tells us what it is. I mean, Romans 7, Paul says we wrestle with indwelling sin and all, all these things, even after we become Christ's. I mean, there's still so much in us that needs to be put to death. I know it's true of me. I've walked with God now for, goodness, 45 years, and there's still so much growth, so much maturity. I'm, I am scandalized at how immature as a believer and how sinful I can still be. 45 years, that's a long time to walk with God. I should be way down the road further than I am. Wow. It's frustrating, isn't it? I look forward to the day when sin will be no more and death will be no more. I mean, it's guard against temptation. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring, the wellspring of life. Do you know yourself? Do you know yourself? Are you in Christ? Calvin, and you know I quote this all the time because it's really, it's kind of the heart of my ministry. The genuine wisdom consists entirely in knowledge of God and knowledge of self. You know God is holy and righteous and just. And you know yourself is lost and undone and in need of grace every single day. A Savior and then grace every day. And vice versa. You know yourself accurately. You know God accurately. Do you? Does Jesus know you? Would he say, you know, I know Noah. He's one of my sons. I know Jennifer and Adam, and I know Keegan. I know Lisa and Jake. I know, I know them, but you? I don't know you. He knows your heart. He knows what you need, and what you need is a Savior. And the only thing that can transform you is his grace. You can't just try harder. This is not a call to go home and turn over a new leaf. This is a call to cry out and say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins according to the Scriptures, that Jesus, fully God and fully man, that Jesus died in my place, condemned. I was condemned. I deserved hell, and he bore hell's wrath in my place that I deserved. That's it. And leaning on it, believing he not only died, but on the third day rose again from the dead and defeated death, and you will live in eternity with him forever. That's as hard as I can go in a summary of the gospel right there. Because there is a payday coming someday, either at the end of your life or when he comes back. And I, I plead with you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters. I plead with you, beloved. Don't leave here until this is settled. Settle it. The way you know yourself, the way Jesus knows you, do you? You say, well, Pastor Jeff, I just don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. Can you be sure? Yes, you can be sure. Scripture tells us you can be sure. You can know that you know that you know that you're in Christ. You say, but I don't know. I'm not sure that I truly know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. What should I do? I'll leave you with this. I'll put this on the board. I'll go back to the words of Revelation 3. John wrote these words too. When he's talking about the sinfulness of the, the church at Sardis, 
I want you to think about this today. He says this, I know your works. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. You go to church. You've been baptized. You claim to be a Christian. I know your reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You're dead. He says, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. And I think he has eternal eternity in mind there. For I have found, I have not found your works or literally your faith in me. That's a literal translation. I've not found your faith in me complete in the sight of God. And you don't complete that. His grace completes that. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. Look at the warning. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Because he's either coming for you because you're in him or he's coming in judgment and you'll be judged now and in eternity. Flee to him. Flee to him today. Know him as your Lord and Savior and be known by him. Let's pray. Father, what a sobering text this is. God, I pray I've done my best to make it clear if I haven't, I pray you'd make it clear because, Lord, it's up to your Holy Spirit to apply it. Lord, I know there's people here who do not know you today. I know that. Every time we meet, Lord, that's true. Work in their hearts. Awaken those who are deceived. Awaken those who are blind. Open their blind eyes and unstop their deaf ears. And do what you alone can do. Draw them to yourself. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. May help us to be in you. I pray that every person in this hearing this morning will be saved and will be in you and have an interest in the saving Lord of Jesus Christ. Oh God, do it for your glory. We pray all of this in his strong and mighty name, Jesus the Christ, our Lord. Amen.